Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. And in honor of Women's History Month, we're going to take the opportunity to wax philosophical about some influential thinkers from the male-dominated world of academic philosophy. The same world whose most famous name said things like, she, the proverbial woman, has the capacity for understanding, but her capacity is weak. That was Thomas Aquinas. To women, silence is a crowning glory from Aristotle. Troubling things to hear from guys whose ideas shape society as much as they do. More troubling still if you're a graduate philosophy student who happens to be a woman, as my next guest was. Her name is Reagan Penaluna, and her new book is called How to Think Like a Woman, Four Women Philosophers Who Taught Me How to Love the Life of the Mind. It comes out tomorrow. Its chapters flow between the story of Reagan's academic career and personal relationships through gatekeeping professors and self-doubt and outright misogyny to a survey of how some of the field favorites, Plato, Aristotle, Bacon, treated the women in their lives to a celebration of the lives of four philosophers, Mary Astle, Damaris Masham, Mary Wollstonecraft, and Catherine Coburn. It's a Coburn or Cockburn? It's Coburn. Thank you. We'll get to talk all about that with Reagan Penaluna. Reagan, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Allison. It's great to be here. You mentioned that when you were defending your dissertation, your professors gave you props for being the first doctoral student in the department's history to focus on Research on women philosophers. Okay, so first of all, that must have blown your mind as being the first. Um, and how did that academic work inform the ground you cover in the book? Um, so, you know, that, that did floor me. Um, but at the same time, I, I had never studied uh, a woman philosopher in any class. I hadn't mm. taken any feminist philosophy courses. So um, I, I, I knew I knew what I was getting into. Um, <laughs> But it, the my dissertation covered three of the four figures you mentioned, and um, they formed the bedrock for this book. Um, I completed my PhD. I went on to teach philosophy, and um, I never forgot them, even after I left academia. Mm. And um, I wanted to tell their story because we don't often hear the story of women in philosophy, right? It's the field that's known to be the field of dead white men, but it's not. Actually, there were women in the early Enlightenment, mm -hmm. which is the period I studied, and there have been women from the very beginning. It's interesting. You talk about, I'm going to get to the women very shortly, <laughs> but the idea of this, the woman question, the yes. woman question comes up over and over again, male philosophers weighing in on the woman question. First of all, what is the question exactly? Good question. <laughs> um, it's, it's a question that comes up. Um, from the dawn of, of philosophy is, um, you know, philosophers are very much interested in the human condition. What is it to live a good life? Mm -hmm. What is it to be a member of society? And um, often this question is uh, framed in a way that um, is specific to the, the men doing the philosophy, to white men. And um, so other questions such as, who are these other people over here, these women, um, are considered to be a sort of a unique question. Let's call it the woman question. And um, it's something that um, I, f I found uh, didn't bring me into philosophy, but once I was there, I realized um, I couldn't stop thinking about it because uh, it's, 
it's treated as a, a marginal question, which seems so strange. Um, to be a woman is to be a human, and it should be part of the larger questions that we ask in philosophy. Although, as you write in the book, you sort of, as I was, I was reading through it, it's always the man's opinion of the woman yeah. is the answer to the woman's question. Yes. <laughs> Right. right. And this has to do with uh, the history of philosophy as it's taught. Right. Uh, we we learned that the greatest philosophers of all time are Plato, Aristotle, Rene Descartes, John Locke, Immanuel Kant. Um, and these guys, uh, it also turns out, didn't have very uh, pleasant things to say about women. And um, they set the discourse. The truth is, though, there were women um, responding to these thinkers and um, defending women. And there are also men doing the same thing, but we don't hear about them. My guest is Reagan Penaluna. The name of the book is How to Think Like a Woman, Four Women Philosophers Who Taught Me How to Love the Life of the Mind. Let's talk about some of the, the philosophers. Mary Astell, uh, born in 1666. How did she buck the expectations of the time for women living in, she was in England, right? She was. So all four of these thinkers that I focus on are British. There is a chapter where I run through uh, the history of philosophy, and I, I talk about women from all over the world. Um, but these four um, were British, and Mary Astell grew up in Newcastle in northern England, and she was a, an incredible person. Um, she was uh, brought up in a coal mining family and um, as gentry, so she was well-to-do. Mm -hmm. But it just turned out that the mines were running low. Um, and so her father uh, lost a lot of money and the family was in debt. And by the age 12, um, when her father died and she realized she had no dowry, which um, meant that it, if she would marry, which of course she would marry, she's a woman, she would have to marry below her. And... Um, what this meant, too, was that she would have to give up um, the studies that she was undertaking with her um, uncle, Ralph Astell, who was a philosopher and studied um, at Cambridge University. And so um, this was a bleak future for her. Um, to marry someone below her station would most likely mean she would be left to do drudgery, and so uh, her teenage years were very melancholic, and she um, at the, she didn't want to participate in parties. She writes about this in poetry. She found it all terrible, doing makeup and dresses. Um, and so mm -hmm. she um, decided that uh, around her early 20s that she was going to buck tradition, as you said. And she left Newcastle and took a carriage south to London, a two-week journey at that time, and made um, uh, took a risk to try to make it as a philosopher. And no woman had ever done this at the time. There was a woman who made a living writing, Afra Bain, and there were a few women doing philosophy, mm -hmm. but they were aristocrats. And so if their works didn't sell, it wasn't a problem. So Mary Astle took a big risk. And um, it was tough that first year, but the risk paid off, and she became a very uh, well-known woman philosopher of her age. What about her work or her way of thought has uh, – why does it have staying power? What about her work? Mary Astle um, spoke to me as a uh, – first as a graduate student when I came across her work. Her book – that spoke to me is titled A Serious Proposal to the Ladies. And I loved that title. 
Um, no other title in early modern philosophy spoke to me like that. You know, the, the titles of the book are Meditations on Philosophy, The Search After Truth, Ethics, and then there was a serious proposal to the ladies. Love that. <laughs> so, um, and in this book, she addresses um, the sexism and misogyny that a woman confronts, a woman who wants to think. And she wants to provide a remedy for this. And her solution is for women to come together and form an intellectual community, um, one that is protected from that misogyny and sexism they find because it is uh, no men are allowed. And um, it essentially is a first a proposal for a first, you know, a female college. Um, and this idea in graduate school was sort of a revelatory. Mm-hmm. Um, the importance of, of finding those people uh, who make you feel like you belong so that when you are working through ideas and taking risks, you feel that support, which is something that I didn't feel as a graduate student in a male-dominated uh, world. Damaris Masham. Tell us a little more about Damaris Masham. Damaris, um, so she lived a very different life from Mary Astle. She um, was born and raised on the, the grounds of Cambridge University. Her father was Ralph uh, Cudworth. Um, a famous philosopher of the time, although we don't know about him because he had a very strange philosophy. Um, and so she was, um, she studied philosophy from a young age and um, most likely from her father. And although she does talk about how she was discouraged from it, but we don't know why that was. Um, but she eventually met the most famous philosopher of the time, John Locke, mm-hmm. right, who inspired the founders of the U.S. Constitution with this theory of inalienable rights. So she met him over twice her age. She's a hot, smart young woman. They met at a party. He was turned on, and he wrote her a letter. And it sort of kicked off this um, long, uh, almost 20-year correspondence between the two. How would that correspondence have been viewed at the time? Um, it wasn't unusual for mm-hmm. older men to court y- young women. Um, John Locke, he, he also was not interested, though, in a serious relationship. And this was partly because at that time, to be um, an intellectual as a man was to be uh, chaste. And mm-hmm. there was a theory that too much ejaculation actually robs you of your reason. And so John Locke um, was not interested in engaging in marriage, although he did have flirtations with other women. Um, But so this sort of um, relationship was not unusual. What did Damaris want to explore? What did she want to think about? So Damaris, um, she was intimately familiar with theories of knowledge and metaphysics of her time. She knew her father's philosophy inside and out and explained that to John Locke and to Leibniz, another contemporary philosopher. Um, but what got Damaris into philosophy, what uh, made her take that risk, because it was a risk for a woman to do philosophy. Mm-hmm. A woman doing philosophy was considered monstrous. Um, she was looked down upon as if she's stepping outside of what is expected of her. Um, but what drew her to it um, was some uh, many years later, after she was married, and she didn't marry John Locke, she married someone else, had children. Um, 
But it was motherhood. It was thinking about what it is to be a mother. And she wrote about the dignity of motherhood at a time when mothers were being disparaged and um, blamed for um, perpetuating sin in the world. That's interesting. You mentioned risk and stepping outside of the prescribed roles. If you stepped outside the role, were you allowed to come back into the fold? Or was it one of those situations where if you step out, if you take this risk, there's a chance you cannot come back into society? Or what society says you should be doing or Mm -hmm. behaving? Yeah. Um, I just think that depends on a case-by-case situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Masham took this risk. It's not clear. I don't think her work was that popular. Um, Not many people discussed it. A friend of hers translated into French, and uh, that's about all we know. Mary Astle, on the other hand, was very well-known, very controversial. She was called a monster. I think it was tough, but she, by the time all of her works were coming out, she had a really good support network with some women. Um, And so I think she could manage that. My guest is Reagan Penaluna. The name of the book is How to Think Like a Woman. It comes out tomorrow. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, you write in her book, Rights of Women, that what she wrote about male philosophers was racy and delightfully out of place among the niceties of academia. Why did she lean into that tone? Why was that her route to philosophy? Um, I love Mary Wollstonecraft. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, she just could not, she kind of met the things that men were saying about women, the way that, frankly, philosophers treated the woman question as a special question that Mm -hmm. is separate from human nature, um, as uh, uh, with disgust. How can this Mm -hmm. be? How come you aren't treating women as equals, right? Um, Her favorite philosopher was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And... um, she relies, uh, she looks a lot to his theory of education, his moral psychology, um, and his claim that, you know, freedom is the goal of human life. And the, the thing is, though, is Rousseau really only extended that to men. And um, that she just found incredibly upsetting. And, and so she extends it to women, too. This is a great line. She writes, Men indeed appear to me to act in a very unphilosophical manner when they try to secure the good conduct of women by attempting to keep them always in a state of childhood. Yes, yes. Um, And they're in a state of childhood because they haven't been allowed to reason. Um, Mm -hmm. They haven't been allowed to cultivate their intellects. And, you know, this is something that I found really fascinating about Wollstonecraft, too, is um, she describes women as, um, you know, capable of so much, but they have been conditioned to be, and she says this like a, like a dog, spaniel-like, um, to please men, just as dogs are, you know, are so good at pleasing humans. Um, and she found that, she was so disturbed, she found that in herself. And um, she fell in love with a man, an American, Gilbert Imlay. And um, when she found out he cheated on her, she attempted suicide. And then when she found out he did it again, and she attempted again. And she was so conflicted in herself that a part of her was so susceptible to being uh, the conditioned weak woman. But then there was this other part of her with this feminist imagination who had great ideals for womankind. Catherine Coburn began as a playwright. Yes. Wrote for women on stage. How did theater and and expression through theater fold into her work as a philosopher? 
So, yeah, she started off writing plays, um, and these plays she saw as instructive. And um, this goes back to Aristotle's idea of drama as uh, really a way to change and the sentiments of those who are watching. And so she used her plays as a, a vehicle to convince people that women deserve freedom of conscience, that we have to care for them. Um, what happened is that um, she and these couple other female playwrights who were relatively successful um, also took quite a bit of battering. And, um, w you know, there was a play written called Female Wits, which really disparaged these three. And so eventually they all left playwriting behind. It, it was a tough field. I mean, they were made fun of. They were called... Uh, prostitutes, they were called idiots, you know, just what all of these awful things. And so Coburn retired to the country and realized that if she is going to get this message across about women's um, right to a freedom of conscience, she's probably going to have to choose something else, hmm. <laughs> something um, that, you know, um, people will take her uh, hopefully a little more seriously and sh which she can provide a more firm foundation for. And so this began her turn to philosophy. For you, you know, you left academia. What right. made you want to leave? Mm. Um, yeah, let's start with that. What made you want to leave? Let's leave it there. You know, it's a complicated um, answer. Um, I, I did, I turned to journalism and, and into writing for a general audience. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's um, part of it is what I found when I left, and I left because I, I fell in love, and my husband's in New York City, and um, it's very difficult as an academic to find a job mm -hmm. where you want to live. And I was in a four-year contract position. And so that's the short answer to that is simply, um, you know, convenience and, and for family. Um, but also, I, um, I began to see that the questions that I was asking and the ways I wanted to think about these philosophers um, and about these four in particular, um, I really wanted to lean into their female subjectivity and telling their life stories and, and understanding them in a way that I think started to bleed outside of academia yeah. and made more sense um, as a writer. The name of the book is How to Think Like a Woman for Women Philosophers Who Taught Me How to Love the Life of the Mind. I want to let you know that Reagan Penaluna will be at the Cobble Hills Books Are Magic tomorrow at 7 p.m. with Ada Calhoun. Wanted to make sure I got that in there. Thank you so much for coming to the studio today. Thank you so much. There's more, all of it, on the way. Stay with us. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.